Hello and welcome back to Kairos. I am here today with Leonie Scriven to talk about foster caring. Leonie, great to have you here. Thank you. It's good to be here. Uh, Leonie has been a foster carer for a number of years. Um, I met Leonie many years ago when we were in the same congregation and we were just reminiscing about some uh, stories from those days. And so I thought it would be a good opportunity to uh, reconnect with Leonie and have a conversation about um, what what it's been like for her to be a foster carer. Um, So Leonie, perhaps you can begin by just telling us a little bit about um, yourself. Who are you? I am. I am Leonie and I am a foster carer. Um, I grew up in the mid-north in um, the early 50s, lived in a little town called Golnair, started my education in Golnair, moved to Puri as a teenager, completed my education, started my nursing degree, met my husband-to-be, came down to Adelaide, uh, married, had children, worked and then reached a point in life where foster care was the start of our next journey. Mm, mm. And uh, you're, a, you're a Christian. Did you grow up in the church? I grew up in the church. We were, we were taken to church as children. Um, that was your Sunday drive. We went to Port Pirie for the church. We didn't have um, a Christian upbringing in the home as such. It was just you went to church on Sundays. But as a child, I was sent to stay with people often, and one of the pieces, places I stayed was with my godparents, who were practising Lutherans, and we would have devotions and, and Christian stories there. Very strict, very strict upbringing. But I had an affinity with the pastor that we had in Port Perry at the time, who mm. has since passed on. Um, I, at one point, wanted to be a nun and a deaconess. I just, there was a connection with the church, and I mm. can't say for what reason? It was just one of those things that I grew up feeling an affinity with. Mm. But I went to church and that was it. There was no overwhelming, this is who I am. My faith grew and developed with the people I came in touch with. And one of those people was Ern Heine, the pastor I had. And then with Ron, my husband. Um, and then going to church with the children and teaching Sunday school and by vacation Bible school and then probably the pastor we were just talking about um, is is the pastor that made me really stop and think hmm. uh, and really I don't think I can honestly say that my faith became a recognisable faith until my dinner court days uh, wow. when Keith was there. Yeah, oh, big shout out to Keith McNichol, yes. <laughs> he's the pastor we're talking about. Yes. For those of you in, um, familiar with our, our circles here in the Lutheran Church of Australia, oh, that's wonderful. Yeah. So it's, it's a late and a long, mm. slow um, road to faith and people um, just assume that you've been a Christian all your life and I guess on the boundaries I have, but um, recognising your own faith mm. um, comes differently at different times for people and, and does, I came... Yeah later in life and to be quite honest when Ron died was when I hit the wall and I, I realised just how much I needed my faith and how much faith I did have. Hmm. Um, so it's been there but I guess you take it for granted until something in your life happens hmm. and you really realise just how important it is. 
And that's perhaps a, a good transition point into the foster care and discussion because I know that it was it was all around this same time in your life that this journey started as well, if, if I'm right. So perhaps you can tell us about how did you first get into foster caring? Um, when I was a child, I was cared for a lot uh, by other people. One family in particular uh, was the parents of a school friend took me in when my mother was ill and they treated me like their own child. I didn't feel like I was a nuisance. I didn't feel like a visitor. I had jobs to do. I had rewards when I did well at school. I had praise. I had hugs and cuddles. And I felt like I was part of the family. And that was just, uh, it was mind-blowing. It really was. I wasn't a nuisance. It was, I felt loved. And that sowed a seed. It must have just stuck in my head. Uh, when we moved from the farm into Piri, my parents were cottage parents. And so they were the parents in a government home that had four or five older foster children in them. So I then understood what foster care was about. From quite uh, an early age. Then. From a fairly early age. And then when I started nursing, I was aware of children in the neonatal unit that were being cared for, waiting for foster carers. And then one day I was um, working and there was an older couple came by I assumed they were grandparents to a child, struck up a conversation and found out they were foster carers. And instead of working, I talked to them and I thought, well, they were in their late 60s, early 70s, and they were still fostering. And I thought, well, it's not too late. So I went home and talked to Ron, who immediately said, what do you want to do that for? So so, so how old were you at this stage, I was, if, if I'm allowed to ask? I was <laughs> 55 and Ron mm -hmm. was nearly 66. And um, he just thought, what? <laughs> but um, after a bit of badgering and nagging, etc., he said... Encouraging, yeah. <laughs> yes, strong encouragement. Um, he came along to classes with me and we did the training and he said, we'll see how we go for six months. It took him three, less than three months and he mm. was gone. He was smitten. And uh, I haven't looked back. He didn't look back. Mm. Uh, for the next four years, we had 16 children often two and three, and on one occasion four at a time. And the day he died, I went out to his work to see him, and in his office, all around the top of the... around his desk were photos of all 16 children and their grandson. Hmm. So um, he really took to it, yeah. So perhaps um, you can tell us then a little bit more about that process in becoming a foster carer, because I know that probably uh, in modern society that could be one thing that that is quite overwhelming for people thinking about the steps that you must go through it, to get to that point. It is. Um, it's a bit scary and you don't expect to have your privacy invaded quite so much. Mm -hmm. um, there's, there's some basic things like you need a um, police clearance and it's a very intense police clearance. It just doesn't clear you, it clears your immediate family an extended family as well. Right. So the people that are going to be involved with whatever child you have, uh, they need to be cleared of um, anything too sinister, I guess. Mm -hmm. no, driving offences is okay, but anything against children is just definitely not. So you have that clearance, and if you get through that, then you can start the training, which is fairly intense, more so now, I think, than when Ron and I started, because we were it, we were the only carers being um, processed at the time. So yep. all of our training was done in our lounge room. So it was quite relaxed and it really wasn't quite onerous. But it's about safe care of infants. It's about mandatory reporting and mm -hmm. recognising trauma, knowing how to manage trauma. 
Um, then we had a family tree, a genogram done, which was quite extensive. Um, then Ron and I were interviewed together and separately, um, which was a test. Hmm. Um, it really checked our communication skills, our honesty skills. Our finances were looked into. Uh, our relationship was looked into. Our sex lives were looked into. There were no secrets. No. Um, so that we came out of that process just looked at each other and thought, wow. <laughs> um, so for us, it took six months yep. for the training. These days, it takes about nine months. And uh, when I'm talking to potential carers, I say, if you look at it like a pregnancy, it takes nine months to have a baby. Hmm. And it's pretty similar. So is that all um, gov the government doing that, or is that outsourced to, in to other entities who well, do that sort of training? Different organisations. Mm -hmm. Losing Community Care do all their own training. Mm -hmm. And... Um, once they've done their training, they write up an assessment mm -hmm. and present that to a government department who then has to process all that information and either approve us or not, as the case may be. Yeah. Fortunately, we were approved in October 10 years ago, yeah. whenever that was, um, 2009. And um, we had one offer of a baby pretty much straight away and I thought about it, I talked to Ron about it, we prayed about it and we said no. Only because at that time we were raising our grandson and this particular child was a terminal child and mm. um, because Ron was a little bit apprehensive I just thought this is not a good start to mm -hmm. a foster care journey. Um, so I did decline that and was wracked with guilt for weeks and weeks and weeks and it was December before we got our first baby, um, had a phone call when the mother went into labour. Uh, baby was to be removed immediately and um, that was it. So uh, as much as you're able, can you tell us about, uh, in, say in that sort of situation, what are, what are the circumstances for these families? Like, um, so in that case, the, the mother or the people caring for her knew ahead of time that this, this was going to be a foster child for reasons of the mother's health or the family circumstances? Yeah. Or it, it, I think the um, overriding umbrella for children coming to care is mental mm -hmm. illness. The parents have a degree of mental health issue. Um, with our first baby, who to this day, she'll be 10 this year, calls herself Omar's number one baby. Um, she, her parents had uh, some significant drug issues mm -hmm. and serious mental health issues. Um, so it was quite a dangerous situation, her removal from the hospital. Um, and it was dangerous for the time we had her because, um, you know, we had police protection and the mm -hmm. social workers changed several times. Mm -hmm. But that's the only really scary situation we've ever had. And we, we kept her for four months and she's now with her forever family. And that entire family is my family, the mm. foster mother of... That number one girl calls me her mother. It's it's just beautiful. There's one of the pluses of foster care. Yeah. Your family grows. Uh, so are there so are there different? So, so you, when you talk about a forever family, um, are there different? What's the categories of yeah. foster care, or how yeah. does that work? When Ron and I started, we were emergency or short term carers. Yeah. Which really is one and the same because there's no such thing as emergency. It just goes on and on. Um, but officially, emergency care is the first three months of care, um, while a child, uh, from the time a child's been removed until the court can make a decision about 
whether the child will go into long-term care or um, to kin, you know, a relative of the parents or back to the parents. Yeah. Um, long-term care is like baby number one who uh, was awarded a gourmet teen and she's now a long-term child, like a forever child, um, where the foster family are their parents for life. Yeah. And so this can be, I imagine, fairly short notice in when you're when you're doing those emergency short yeah, term, um, like you've got plans for the weekend and then a call Friday you get a night. Fr- yeah, <laughs> you don't go anywhere without your mobile phone. Right. Um, yeah, I've, I've had babies turn up at half past one, three o'clock in the morning. Mm-hmm. Um, not quite so much now because I've um, backed off a little bit um, and just take the newborns rather than the older ones. I used to take up to six months, uh, but they'd still bring a four-year-old just because... You know, it was four in the morning and there was nowhere else. Uh, so I don't do the bigger kids now, I just do the babies. Uh, so, yes, any time of the day or night, any day of the week. So life's exciting. Mm-hmm. Um, so, Leonie, one thing that I know some people sometimes wonder about with foster caring is the, how, how caring for these children um, interrelates with caring for your own children, if you have children, or... Um, perhaps in other people's case, grandchildren around and that sort of thing. So um, I wonder if you can comment on that dynamic. Well, I have three children, but they're adults, and they'd all left home before we started fostering. So other than them giving their approval um, as though we needed it, um, (laughs) they were not involved. But my grandson was raised by us for the first five, six years of his life and is still a big part of my life and I of his um, Tyson comes to church with me each week, so even though he doesn't live with me, he comes here every Sunday morning or Saturday night, and we go to church together. Now, Tyson has been a part of every child, all 62 children. He's been a part of their life. And as I alluded to earlier, um, if he's not called on to do something during the service, Tyson is the one that will carry the child to the rail for a blessing. That's something he's extremely proud of. Yeah. And... and it has given him an understanding of, of what goes on out there. And he's part of the reason we decided to foster, because he was an only child and we didn't want him to be spoilt or precocious. We wanted him to be aware of what's going on. And he's learnt so much about the other side, if you like. In fact, part of a school project was to write what makes me special. And he came home and he said, Oh, Omar... I can ride a bike. And I said, so can other kids. And he said, I can ride a a skateboard. And I said, so can other kids. And they can play on computers too. I said, but I bet you no other kid in your class looks after foster children. (laughs) And so he wrote this paper on foster children. And it was beautifully written. He presented it at school twice, once to the class and then once to the teachers. So, um, A, that showed that he understood what goes on. He, he wrote about why we looked after them and how long we looked after them and his involvement. Um, and he wrote about how he felt when they left and how he felt when a new one came. But at the end of the day, it did make him feel special. And that was part of his school assignment yeah. because, you know, he goes to a Christian school and um, Tyson is a, is a boy that often doesn't feel special. Um, so he might have got a good mark for his assignment but he got a higher mark um, for his self-esteem because he was made to feel special because mm. of his involvement. So it's been an enriching experience Totally, for him. totally, mm. yeah. Mm. 
it's been wonderful. Mm. And so, what are the um, what are the biggest joys for you in in being a foster carer, Leonie? Oh, well, one of them was a classic this morning. Um, a carer came for a visit and bought um, her little girl, who was my baby, for a visit, so I could see how she'd grown. Mm. Now, I had this baby from birth, which was two days old, until she was eleven weeks old, and then she went to this. Uh, carer who's now keeping her because she's a gone 18 and just to see the growth and the development and the happiness and like, mum's happy um, baby's happy and and I feel terrific I mean it brings tears to your eyes just mm. the fact that the baby is happy is doing well no more trauma um, visits to the biological parents are being cut back because that is the trauma for the child mm. um, that is the biggest choice to see them grow and develop. I have a couple of children, oh, I have so many, um, out of all the children I've had, there's probably about 15 that I'm regularly in touch with that I'm just an Omar, I'm an honorary Omar. Hmm. Um, one little girl came to me at about, I think she's about 16, 18 months when she came, came to me about half past one in the morning. It was in a really hot, hot February. We'd had a run of 40 plus degree days. She was brought to me with burns on the soles of her feet from being dragged around the streets with nothing on but a nappy. She had head lice. She had cigarette burns to her legs. Uh, she was just a mess um, yeah. and dead to look at. She had no soul, mm. no life in it. Um, she came in and I cuddled her and she fought. She didn't like that, so I didn't dare bath her or do anything, so I popped her in a cot she immediately curled up into a ball, absolutely terrified. And when I reached my hand in to touch her, she just disappeared. It was almost like she was pretending she wasn't there or she was mm. dead. So I stood at the cot and cried, as you do. And I sat there that night and just put my finger through the rail so that she could feel my finger and it wasn't going to hurt her. Um, and it took me 24, 48 hours maybe before she would come to me willingly. And then, of course, we had the process of bathing her and trying to de-lice her and just make her feel safe. But skip all of that that week to get to the point where she would smile and have a bit of life in her eyes. She's the baby I call my Amen baby. Um, when I would give her food, I would sit and hold her hands so that she could say grace. Um, and I'd hold her hands so that she didn't eat until we said grace. And within a couple of days, I didn't have to hold her hands. She would, mm. you know, if I sat down with her, she'd immediately go like this and we'd say, Grace, um, I'd put her to bed at night and she would know that I'd prepared the bottle in the corner. She'd run down to the bedroom door and wait for me, go into her cot and stand there for me to pick her up and put her in the cot. And she'd go like this and look up at me until I sang the nighttime prayer song. I'd give her a bottle, she'd scull it, throw it overboard, and she'd say, Amen. <laughs> uh, it was just precious. And in mm. church, there would be seven-second delay after prayers. She'd all of a sudden realise that everybody had said Amen, <laughs> and she'd pipe up with an Amen. Mm. Um, you know, that, it still brings a smile to my face. It's yeah. The fact that a child so young and so innocent can learn, mm. um, it, it's just beautiful. And that reminds me of just you, you mentioning taking them to church as well. It, it's um, one of the things I remember when we, we worshipped at Dernan Court and, and actually we were just talking about some a, a young couple in my current congregation who also yes. you've got to know who have had their first um, 
foster child and uh, and just just how it also has this effect on the community oh. and and no doubt you've noticed this in your own family and friends and community as well but you just well, it seems to draw people in and, and just do something with these little people. Who, um, they are a magnet for the village. Mm. That it, you know, a village raises a child, and, and these children are the magnet, draws them in. I, I go to church every Sunday, and I walk in, and just these people pull around the pram to see who I've got, um, whether I've had that child for four weeks or for the first time. They mm. want to know the story behind the baby. Um, Babies always come up for a blessing. I don't often carry them out to the front. My grandson, that's what he does, mm -hmm. carries them out to the front. So they have a blessing every week, um, which is important to me. Um, and I just believe that that's one little thing that we can give them before mm. they leave me. Mm. Um, but the gifts uh, that I get from members of the congregation, there's one member without fail will bring a box of nappies or a packet of nappy wipes to church for me to take home. Wow. So I haven't, you know, I haven't bought nappies for a couple of years. <laughs> so you don't get much from the government other than the child in a nappy, but the blessings that you get from so many other people are overwhelming. My doctor's surgery um, supply me each month with fifty odd dollars worth of supplies, whether it be nappy wipes or a um, new couple of items of clothing or. <laughs> You know, whatever I might need, I am, I am a lucky woman. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's very interesting. Um, and so, uh, we've we've been talking a bit about these these positives and these um, moments of joy in the journey. What are the more challenging parts of being a foster carer? Uh, dealing with the government, I think, is the most <laughs> is the most challenging. Um, it, it's it is difficult because you are the advocate for this child, and I know. Officially, the social worker is the advocate, but in actual fact, the social workers are so busy, the system is so bad, that these children are a statistic. So as a carer, we are the only voice the babies have. And if we don't make a stand and make a fuss and stamp our feet, then sometimes the kids just get lost. So that is the most challenging. And um, even with this little button, I fight. Um, There's a baby right here at the moment, by the way, yes, sleeping. <laughs> um, you know, she goes to access and she'll come back and she's absolutely shut down. Um, and mm. so I report mm. that back to the social worker because that shut down behaviour is, is a sign of trauma. Mm -hmm. Some babies will shut down. Other babies will come back from access and they'll scream for 12 hours. Or you'll take them from the driver and cuddle them. The baby will turn in and almost suck the smell out of you to make sure that they're back in their safe space. So we have to speak for them. And the other the more difficult challenge, I think, and the heartbreaking challenge is saying goodbye. Yeah. You know, the, I know when my children are leaving. I know I'm not going to keep them. But you pour your heart and soul into every baby that crosses your front door. Mm -hmm. And from the minute I know when they're leaving, I, I start the grieving process and... There's not one child out of 62 that I haven't shed tears over. Um, it is, it's, it's heartbreaking. I have, um, just over there, palm crosses. And Ron started writing each child's name on the cross. And when he died, my girlfriend's husband has taken on that role. So I've got two palm crosses now. Um, one's completed front and back, and the other one I've just started, the second side. So every name of 
uh, child that's been here. So that when I do my devotions, I've got my palm crosses because I can't remember their names. Yeah. I've got all their names. So how, how many have you had? Do you know? How many? 62. 62 children. Yeah. Wow. Yeah. And just... um, so, Leonie, as you think over the, the many children that you've cared for, um, are there any particular uh, examples that come to mind that you could share with us, just to get one, one concrete um, particular situation? Well, I can talk about a baby who's now nearly two, spent the first six months of her life with me, and I see every week. So a little Chinese girl came to me at birth, very sad circumstances, and through no fault of her mother, um, who doesn't speak English. Um, but baby Alice came to me for care and for safekeeping. It was quite a nasty situation. Alice came to church with me every week, as my babies do. And at, at a certain point, I was able to arrange for mum to have access with Alice at church. And um, so mum and her f other family would come to church and mm. sit in the narthex during the service. And I asked through a, ta a translator if I could still come and get Alice and take her for a blessing, which they were gracious enough to allow me to do. And that happened for you know the remaining time that Alice stayed with me. Now, Alice is now two, left me at six months. Alice and her mum come to church every Sunday. Mm. And mum wants to be washed. I, I just cried the day <laughs> Chen Wei came to me and she said that she wants to be washed. She goes to a Know Your Bible group and she's studying the Bible, does not want to go to a Mandarin speaking church. She wants to come to um, Omar's church because I'm family. And so she wants to be baptised and have Alice baptised now. That'll be a day I cry. That's mm, special. Right. So that is really special. It, it is really, yeah. really special. And it was unexpected I really thought that once Alice went, I wouldn't see them again. Yeah. Without fail, she'll come to church and occasionally bring me some Chinese food and <laughs> um, sits with me every Sunday. It is just beautiful. Mm. The other Sunday, Tyson was godfather to one of our children, uh, one of the babies at church. And Alice and her mum were up at the back at the church and we were at the front. But as they walked down the aisle toward the communion rail during the communion, I could hear Alice halfway down the aisle saying, Omar, Omar, Omar. Um, that fills me with more joy than mm -hmm. you can ever imagine. Um, so that, that's, that's a great example, yeah. an example that mm. um, will make up for all of those children that I've lost, that have gone outside of the LCC system and I'll never see or hear from. But like you say, I mean, you don't, you don't know um, what's going to happen from these, this little bit of time you have. You, you, you couldn't don't. have predicted this, and, yeah. and who knows what, what God will do with these yeah, children in the future. And, it's true. Yeah. You really, uh, I mean, you know, you pray for them every day, sometimes all day, depending on the circumstances. Um, but for this particular child, who I didn't think would come, only children don't stay with me. Mm. But this is still um, my opportunity to be Umar to this family, and it's really special. Mm. Because of some of these things you describe, these very unique um, emotional journeys that you're, you're going through, there must be an incredible um, need for support among foster carers. I imagine that you sort of have a certain empathy for each other that it would be... Well, as I sort of suggested earlier, mm. there is a, a network, a family um, amongst the carers. Uh, my, my family has grown incredibly since, yeah. since Ron died in particular because I don't have him to draw on anymore. And I guess 
there's a lot of single carers and, and single carers in particular draw on all sorts of help. So we, we tend to create little networks, little pockets of network, um, just to vent because a lot of the information we have about these kids, there's so much privacy, you're not allowed to talk about. But with each other, you can almost let your hair down because we're mm. all going through the same thing. We all have babies that have come to us as a result of, of drugs, alcohol, domestic violence, sexual abuse, mental health, um, homelessness, yeah. neglect. Uh, and that all of those issues start in utero. They start at conception. Mm -hmm. So for somebody to say, oh, you've got a baby because they're not traumatised, um, they just don't know. Um, these babies are born traumatised mm. and and the the joy, the aim of having a newborn is to help rewire their brains because those first two years of life are when you can rewire them mm. and you can teach them to love and attach and um, know what affection is. So, yeah, the, um, foster carers are unique, I guess, in that we all travel the same road and we all understand each other's pain at, in at different times. Yeah. But you also need outside people that don't foster. Yeah, sure. Just so that you can be normal. Yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And um, as a as a Christian Leone, we talked about your a bit about your faith journey mm. early on. How how has that interacted with um, being a foster carer? How's your faith been shaped by these experiences? Incredibly. Um, I think my, in fact I know my faith has grown so much in the last 10 years and, and more so in the last six since Ron died um, because I've, I've needed it. I've, you know, you, you do tend to take it for granted, I think. You know, it's just there. Um, but you don't call on it, you don't pull on it until you hit rock bottom um, and then you appreciate it. Once you've, you've hit rock bottom, um, which was the case when Ron died. Mm. But since then... I think I've grown so much more. I'm certainly more confident in my faith. I'm not embarrassed to talk about my faith, uh, which was, I think, was the point. Not that I wanted to be embarrassed, but uh, a lot of my friends aren't Christians. Um, and whether it be for their comfort or mine, I'm not sure, we didn't actually mm. say the G word because mm. it might be uncomfortable. But I'm, I'm quite comfortable. In fact... Um, I tell them that you know if it wasn't for for God, I I don't know where I would be right now. I, I and that I don't mean to be exaggerating or anything, but when Ron died, that was a, a key point. Um, and the children, I had two with me when he died. Uh, they were the reason I got up in the morning because I couldn't see past the fact that somebody needed me. Yeah. Um, and then bit by bit. Um, the church family was always there for me. Mm -hmm. uh, we were without a pastor at the time, which made it a little bit difficult. Um, but since then, um, you know, sort of I'm here and Faith's here and around and yeah. um, and that's that's my life now. Yeah. Um, and the children, um, they come to church with me. They go up for a blessing every week. Mm. Um, I sing them. In fact, the only songs I know are the, the songs I sing them at bath time and <laughs> night time, which are, you know, what a friend we have in Jesus and Jesus loves me and all those sorts of things. Um, and if they're unsettled, I only have to sing those and it's instant calm. So um, so babies in this home grow up 
knowing that God is life. Mm. Um, mm. The DVD that I play for them, especially the withdrawal babies, is a, um, a, a God's a Kids Praise DVD. And the music is soothing and it's a bit like an earworm. It's in your head and you're humming it for the whole day. Uh, so your faith is integral. It is who I am. Mm. Mm. And let's say there's um, a person or a couple out there who has considered becoming a foster carer at some point. Um, would you have any words of advice or encouragement? Or Oh, please do it. <laughs> please. <laughs> there is no life like it. I... I love it. I thought I would retire at 65. I really did. I thought um, I'm just going to gradually drift off into the sunset. But it's like an addiction. I, I, I can't retire. Yeah. Um, I've changed how I foster. I, I now take them for their three-month order and then I'll take a little bit of a break. I'll go on yeah. a holiday or I'll just take a break. And then I'll put my hand up and say, OK, I'm ready. Yeah. Um, and there's another baby ready for me. I, I cannot imagine uh, the day coming that I stop. The joy out of having these children is immeasurable. To watch a baby that comes to you like this the whole time yeah. um, because they're withdrawing or screaming in pain because of drugs, to watch them smile or to watch them be nursed and not tremble... Um, to cuddle them and, and see their face relax and see a smile. You know, you can't put a price on that. Uh, there is no money in it if you want to foster. <laughs> Trust me, you're not going to make any money. Yeah. Um, but you can't put a price on on what you get from looking in a baby's face. Um, even this one who's just gone five weeks, she's starting to smile and coo. Now, right. How do you price that? How do you measure? It? You can't. It's... Yeah. Um, you can't write about it. You, you just—it's just something that is immeasurable, but um, you just can't give it up. Mm. It's like—it's like a drug on its own. Well, um, Leonie, thank you very much for speaking about your a bit about your journey with foster caring today. When um, we were corresponding about this before we met, we one of the um, documents that you sent me, which you had written. The title on the top of it was um, a quote from Jesus, let the little children yeah. come to me. Mm. And that's sort of been ringing in my, my ears as, as we've been talking today and it seems like a good, um, a good banner to have over everything we've been talking about. Yeah, well, it's, it's important and they deserve it. Why should they be denied yeah. that opportunity? If only I could have them baptised. <laughs> <laughs> right. we're, we're not allowed to do that, right. but they can right. go up for a blessing. Right, mm. right. Well, thank you again, Leonie, and uh, Thanks, God bless Josh. you. Thank you very much.